Hey, this is Chai Guy. And this is The Bomb. What you are about to hear is our first ever burn cast, recorded live at Burning Man headquarters in San Francisco, California, on January 31st, 2006. Prior to Burning Man 2005, the Discovery Times channel struck a deal with the Burning Man organizers to film a reality TV show called Only in America. This sparked considerable protests within the community, which culminated in a dialogue with Burning Man organizers. And this is what you're about to hear. If you want to know more about the backstory, please visit SaveBRC.org. As part of our agreement to hand deliver the petitions generated by SaveBRC.org, we agreed to wear tutus. What we didn't expect was that the entire staff at Burning Man headquarters would also be wearing tutus. Action Girl explained that in honor of our visit, Tuesdays would now be known as Tutu Tuesdays, where everyone who wanted to wear a tutu could do so at work. In this interview, we speak with Andy Grace, also known as Action Girl, Burning Man's communications manager, about media and the event. Okay, hey Andy, thank you so much for uh, for inviting us here today. You bet, thanks for coming. Yeah, and we're just wondering, is there a site fee for podcasters? Uh, I think that based on our relationship, we can forego that okay. discussion for the time being. And, <laughs> right on. You know, if you get some interest later for some major media, maybe we'll talk. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, we've, we've wait, bought, wait, let's, let's yeah. take it from the top. Who are okay. we and why we're here? Oh, okay. Well, I'm Chai Guy. And I'm the bomb. Okay, and uh, we're here because we, today we delivered some petitions to Andy and to uh, Burning Man in uh, support of our website, SaveBRC.org. Mm-hmm. And uh, Andy graciously accepted those. She's going to read them and, uh, and put them in the archive and, uh, and listen to the feedback that was on there. Okay, cool. Yeah. So today, uh, in accordance with this interview, we've brought some tequila and some shot glasses. We <laughs> brought some Jack Daniels, if you prefer, and we're going to play the three-pilot uh, community drinking game. What is the three-pilot community drinking game? I know, I know. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Tell us, Andy, what it is. Every time someone says the word community, everyone has to drink. Okay, there you go. Now, we brought you. We brought you a choice. You can have Jack Daniels or you can have tequila. Yeah. Uh, I think being that i got a work day ahead of me and Jack is an old friend. Okay. So right on. Right on. Right. Play. Yay. <laughs> Yay. That's awesome. Don't okay. tell my boss. Okay, we won't. <laughs> okay, so how does the game work? Okay, so the game works is whenever the, whenever the person says... Uh, community, the word community, they have to take a shot themselves. And if you're playing along at home, you can choose someone now. To You can either be uh, with Andy, with Chai Guy, or with the bomb, and when that person says community, then you drink at home. And that's the sound that you'll hear uh, when it's time for you to drink. Okay, let's get started. Okay. Thank you so much, Andy. This has really meant a lot to me. Yeah. And I want to thank you for the time you spent with me on the playa to talk to me. And I'm really thankful for this opportunity here today. I'm glad you guys came, and I know you took time out of your day and drove up from L.A. and took a day off work, and, and everybody's got busy lives, so I really appreciate the dialogue on this. All right, what I want to know is who you are and what you do for Burning Man. Well, my name is Andy Grace, and on the playa and online and uh, even to my mom, I'm known as Action Girl. And I am the communications manager for Burning Man. Um, I've been attending for 10 years. This will be my 10th year, and I started volunteering uh, on my second year for the media team and over the course of the next four years got so involved that they said well if you're going to be here every day working all the time I basically worked my way into um, helping to manage Media Mecca and was hired as Marion's uh, assistant in nine, uh, 2000. Um, I came in and started doing data entry for the office and then kind of just made myself indispensable and here I am. Um, and so I've worked here full-time for six years and in my capacity I helped to run Media Mecca and uh, our year-round media and PR efforts, including um, uh, monitoring of our trademarks and enforcement of our copyrights, et cetera. 
Um, in addition to that, I also do some other things for the organization, run the regional network, etc. But the primary focus of what I'm what I do is is largely media. Okay, cool. Okay, cool. And um, I heard that recently you went on tour with the Reverend Billy and were doing some work with a film. I did. Actually, because of working with the media over the past few years, I've gotten involved with a couple of films. Um, basically, when filmmakers show up at the event, if they want interviews, if they want to know where to go for X, Y, and Z, we don't hold their hands, but we are there to help them keep from traipsing all over the place and getting nothing. So um, I began to help people with making their films, and I developed kind of a, a hobbyist interest in it. And... Um, when Beyond Blackrock came and proposed doing a film about behind the scenes, obviously that was going to need a lot of interaction from our staff. Right. So I helped them to the point that I spent most of my playa experience that year helping to make that movie, and I loved it so much that I've been dabbling in films since then. And I took December off to go on tour with Reverend Billy and um, make a movie about consumerism and, and at Christmas time in America. Oh, oh nice. Okay. It was fun. And what, did, were you the director on that project, or were you, were you what capacity were you working with? Um, basically, I was helping with the production. Uh-huh. I went in because the director, Rob Van Alcamada, um, was the director of photography for Beyond Black Rock. Oh, okay. And we're old friends. And um, the producer, Mike Wilson, uh, who did Beyond Black Rock, is a friend of his, and he said, you should go drive the bus for Reverend Billy's tour, and he knew that I had been wanting to get my commercial driver's license, because oh. I like to drive big things. That's funny. So I wrote to Rob, and I said I wanted to drive, and he said, oh, no, 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 I need you to help produce. So, oh, wow. you know, production means just whatever you have to do to cause the film to happen. I did a lot of the housing stuff, because there were 35 of us, so I contacted people in our various cities and had volunteers take people into their homes and essentially... It was, it was really part of the film, the fact that people were meeting Americans at Christmas time and seeing how they spent money with their families or those who didn't celebrate or shop at all, etc. So, um, and then there was a whole crew going ahead of us doing interviews and, and expert di- dialogues and things like that. Nice. So. And didn't you get a wig? <laughs> I did get a wig. Um, <laughs> <laughs> funny word travels fast. We, uh, <laughs> part of what I was going to do on the film was to help Rob. You know, for example, we went to Bentonville, Arkansas, where Walmart headquarters was, oh. and they wanted to do a sunrise sermon at their offices. Um, and so, in order to do that, we had to send scouts ahead to kind of check out what the land looks like mm-hmm. and where the security guards are and stuff. And my plan had been to go with Rob to do that. Now. Um, you may know, listeners, that I have pretty bright red hair. At the time, my hair was bright, bright red. Right now, it's orange. And so while we were in New York, I said, we said, let's get a disguise for me so that when you and I travel to Bentonville, we can pretend to just be a couple on our vacation. <laughs> and and uh, I found that, you know, while I love to move through the world with a colorful demeanor and, and I love other people that do, sometimes it's just easier to be taken seriously if you've got brown mm-hmm. hair. And so we went shopping for the wig. We never ended up using it. Because of the accident, um, our bus on the tour was rear-ended by a semi three days in. Our director was was really, really injured badly. And our producer had to come in and play director uh, for that portion of the film. But then that kind of threw things into a different loop of who was going to do what. And I ended up spending a lot more time on the bus and not as much scouting. So I didn't get to use the wig, but I still have it. When, when can we can we, can we look for that coming out and like where what kind of venue is it going to come out on? I believe that the they're trying to wrap things up by August and there will be a tour in support of the film next Christmas. Okay. Uh, with Reverend nice. Billy, uh, Reverend Billy and the Church of Stop Shopping, I think are coming to the West Coast in March for a tour. Um, but the film is is just in post production now, so it's a pre- it's a pretty big deal. It's it'll be a major release in theaters. Okay. Cool. 
Cool. And, and you, so you got this job, you got work to, to able to work for Burning Man by first being a participant in volunteering, is that right? Absolutely. Okay. Okay. And one of the things that we wanted to ask you is, um, we know that, you, I mean, obviously we went and we spoke with you on the ply this year, and so we understand, you know, just the intense, intense amount of work that that week is for you. But do you ever get to experience the event as a participant, as just as just a regular person and not as Action Girl? Yeah. It's a really good question. Um, at, it's, it's been a little different each year, and it's not like it's a build and I'm getting less and less of it. It's just always different based on what I'm doing okay. with my time and also some personal choices I've right. made in my life. Like, I've left my camps that were all about staying up all night and partying mm -hmm. because, frankly, I'm a little too old for that these <laughs> days. And I've found that while I still, you know, I... I love to have fun there, but I don't necessarily get as much out of it if I push myself so far that I stay up all night, for right. example. So um, I feel that I've I've had that sort of experience, and but I still get to do a lot of like running around and seeing things because it's part of my job. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like for example, as I'm going to pick up the um, personal use agreements from the gate, I'm out in the city. I'm moving around, and I might stop off at a friend's camp and have some bacon and a mimosa or. Pie. Uh, pie at Gatesville. Um, I, and then after about 6 o'clock, I mean, I'm, I'm always on at work. Like, I always need to be, I have my radio, I need to be ready. If some emergency comes up, I'm on the senior staff. I do pay attention all the time, and I right. carry a page or two. I've been awakened in the middle of the night, certainly. Yeah. But, um, you know, some of that is just re being um, a an ambassador in a way right. you know I go out see my friends find out what's going on in their camps I do a lot of listening to people say hey you know this year they placed my camp over by the porta potties and frankly I have nothing to do with that <laughs> but I am your face of burning man right. when I come to your camp so I it's a blurry line it's kind of like in my daily life I'm never not at work either yeah. like in the middle of the night if I'm chatting with my friends or at a party or something people are very likely to want to talk about burning yeah. man with me so I do think that I still get to experience a lot of the event because, you know, um, I might be going to work, I might be signing a really high-level contract, but I'm probably wearing a tutu when I do it. I'm, I'm a little curious. Is it stressful or is it enjoyable? Yes. Both? <laughs> yeah. I, I like to be busy, mm -hmm. and I like to feel connected to why things happen. Uh, you know, I... I do go to parties and figure out who's the host and help do the dishes, and I do weasel my way backstage when I go to rock shows. Mm -hmm. I like knowing the underneath and, and figuring out, you know, who, the, the minds that cause amazing things like this to happen. So for me, the stresses that come up, which are enormous and sometimes really, like the whole, the whole dialogue that happened, you know, with this protest, a lot of it went really deeply personal for me because the discussion becomes personal. And that causes stress in that, you know, you wake up every day and go, am I doing the right thing with my life? And um, at the same time, it's, I, I like that stimulation and I like being challenged to think. And it's so much fun working here. It's so much fun. And it, it's, nice. I mean, people have to get up and work every day. And since you have to do that, and right. I, I might as well be doing something that I look around and go, oh, my God, I love these people. I love this thing we do. It's never going to be easy. Um, but I'm learning lately really how to better manage my time and, and uh, get a lot more done. So, cool. like that. All right. So, one of the things that spurred SaveBRC.org is we were ignorant about the media process. We didn't know how it worked. So, here's your chance to tell us all about it. What I'd like to know is could you explain how the media at Burning Man works? How does one get permission to film? And how does that permission get approved? Okay. Um, well, it, it depends on the level at which someone wants to film at the event. Basically, <clears throat> what we have 
where we have permission, we have con control over giving permission for is imagery. We can't stop you from coming in the event with your, say, radio mic and recording whatever you want. But when it comes to imagery with the posted signs that say no commercial use of images without your consent, people must register and gain permission in order to use either still or motion imagery. Um, and that said, even if you're just coming and writing about the event, you generally want to get plugged in to where to find out information. So even if someone's not required to get our permission, they go through our registration process because they're accustomed to doing that when they approach a new topic. Hi, I want to do a story about whatever it is you're up to. Here's my credentials, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So uh, around about February is when the online registration process for press really gears up. Um, we have a questionnaire online that basically asks for everything from your name to what kind of cameras you're going to bring, what your background is, where your website is, um, the scope of, of the project you want to do, is it a movie, if so, how do you plan to distribute it, if it's a news piece, etc. So basically qualifying and identifying everything about what it is you say you want to do. Um, we couldn't ever really turn away a print person. So if somebody came in and said, I want to do a sex and drugs and rave at Birdie Man story, um, all we could say is, well, you're not going to get any images to go with your sex and drugs and rave story because that's not what Burning Man is about. But um, the people, you know, freedom of speech, obviously, it's a good thing, too. Right, they right. have the right to write whatever they want. What we hope is that people will show up and do an intensely personal story um, because coming in and trying to explain all the shiny things and how they relate to each other, it just never makes any sense. But if uh, someone is expected to immerse themselves and become a part of the experience, we found over time that that results in a more quality coverage. So we ask them, we, we ask them to buy tickets, just like everyone else. Um, if they are from New York, we'll say, get in touch with the New York Regional. We'll send them to the First Timers Guide. We kind of just bombard them with a bunch of information and opportunities to give of themselves, because Burning Man is what you get, uh, what you get out of it is what you put into it. If they show up looking for the green, green, green room and point their camera somewhere, they're not putting anything of themselves into it. So there are a lot of little you know, ways we work with them along the way to give them information about how to prepare so they don't die. Um, <laughs> and, but also to be understanding of what the rights and responsibilities are that they're going to have and that the rights and responsibilities that our participants are. Um, basically, when they sign a contract for image use, they are signing something that says, I promise to respect the rights of participants, which means asking permission before I shoot, if possible. Sometimes in a crowd scene, obviously, that's never going to work, and sometimes news happens, and then you run up and ask permission. You know, you can't say, hey, do that again, although they sometimes do that, too. Um, <laughs> and we don't allow people to show imagery of illegal acts or nudity because we want to protect people's privacy. Um, so basically, you go through these hoops, and, and we work with people and some of the higher level um, video and television and news stuff requires a certain level of permission before we're going to say yes or no. Student projects that are a film, okay maybe we won't like that you're doing this fiction piece, it sounds a little silly, but if nobody's ever really going to see it uh -huh. and that's how you feel like you express yourself, um, we have various levels of permission along the way so right. it's not like um, you know, you're going to do a piece that, that a million people are going to see. We'll probably not have too much to say about it. But um, if you are doing a piece that a million people are going to see, we're going to spend time researching who you are online, mm -hmm. um, what pieces you've done before, asking you why you want to go to Burning Man, what you think you're going to see, um, in some cases even meeting in person and just checking out your character. Mm -hmm. um, and as these higher levels of permission, you know, open another door for you, then you get to the point where you're signing the contract that says you will be, you'll observe certain behaviors that are expected of you. 
Um, and then there's the whole process once they get to the playa, which involves coming into Media Mecca, getting a tag on your camera, um, which I can go into more about that in a second as it relates to everyone else, too. Right. Um, you get a tag on your camera. You get, uh, you know, if you're doing a certain angle, you might get aimed in a direction and shoved out into the sun and said, what you're looking for is over there. Um, so essentially, it's just a little place to receive them into, hey, you're here. Well, where do I camp? Uh, out there. Um, or maybe you're interested in Canadians. There's a camp of Canadians <laughs> over there. Go make some friends. There's a lot of Canadians in there Burning are Man now, aren't Canadians there? Yeah. In San, my, I, my contention is Canadians and San Diegans are taking over Burning Man. Yeah. <laughs> so um, what are some like what are some of the misconceptions that people in the media have about the event? And 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 with that regard, like how many pe- how many how much of the media are people who have been to the event before, and how how are many are people who have never been and just have heard about it and want to come? I would say that the norm is people that haven't been, but okay. we do have a lot of returning media. Um, sometimes people have been before and they've realized, hey, you know, I'm a writer and I've been coming all these years, maybe I'll do a story for a variety magazine. Or um, we do also have, in, including some of our own volunteers on the media team, people who showed up as media and then stuck around and never did another story again. <laughs> like, one of our volunteers on the media team came to us in 97 or 98 from the BBC. He did his piece. He ended up coming back, and he's one of our top-level volunteers okay. in Media Mecca wow. because he's been, he, just, he had to come back, and he's been through the experience, and he knows how to help others through it. Mm-hmm. Um, but a, a fair number of them are new to the event, and that's where our challenge of making a personal connection comes in. Okay, and you mentioned camera tags, so that's something that we would like to ask you about, how, that, how the camera tagging system works. Okay, yeah, essentially anyone who uses a moving imagery camera in Black Rock City signs a release of some sort that says, identifies the intent of what they're going to do with mm-hmm. it. If you um, are just bringing a personal use video camera and you're going to make a video for your family and friends, you sign a personal, u- personal use document that basically says, I'm only ever going to show this to my mom when I get home. I'm not going to put it up on any websites without your permission, and I'm not going to use it in a feature film or on the news. Um, If you do, you get in touch with us and we talk about it. So, you know, you can get approval for footage after the fact. Say you captured something that was just grand and you think it belongs in film festivals. You can come back to us and say, hey, I didn't expect this, but here it is. So that's one level of permission. By asking even participants to do that tagging system, we've established that no matter who you are, if you come in that door with a video camera, you know that you need some kind of tag on it in order to have permission to film, which is what covered our asses when Voyeur Video shot. Right. I didn't know I had to get a tag. Everybody has to get a tag. And if you do... Do you want to educate us on what Voyeur Video is? Sure, was? sure. Voyeur Video um, did a series called the Rainbow Fire Festival. Uh, they called it Birdie Man, and then we told them they couldn't use our name, and they thought that meant they could sell it under another name. But essentially, it was uh, girls gone wild walking to the porta potties. It was, um, it was, you know, sold as this uh, crazy wilding women of Burning Man thing, and I had to watch all twelve hours of this footage oh, wow. because we were logging to see if there was anyone we knew that we could help add to the case right. because they could make a personal testimony. Because while we can act on your behalf, as it mm-hmm. says on the ticket, um, it's a stronger case if you have individual complaints about footage being shot without their permission. Their argument was that they were on public land and it's news. However, the established, you know, basically rental of, of that land and, and the establishment of a gate that uh, establishes parameters says we can eject you for not following those So rules. it becomes a private event? Yeah. It, it's, saying it becomes a private event is really a strong way to put it. It's a public, it's a private event that's open to anyone who has a ticket, but your ticket can be revoked. For example, um, I did deal with one time a guy who was trying to videotape 
women in showers from his camp inside of his tent. And um, it was discovered by the other people in the camp, and by the end of the day, he was ejected from the event. The rangers mm-hmm. helped us to eject him from the event. So the expectation is that even private individuals are going to uh, respect everybody's boundaries. But when Voyeur Video snuck in um, and they, they claimed that they didn't know this, our, our strength in the case was everyone has to sign something that says they have permission to film at, at Burning Man. So that allowed us to, you know, we, we settled before we hit, we hit the courts. But um, that, that was where our case really came from, is that everybody understands these expectations. Okay. And so um, we were talking a little bit before the interview started about, about site fees, and, and that was one of the things we talked about with, with Save BRC. And we understand that, that some people are charged a flat, a flat fee to come into the event and film, and then there's other people who are charged a 10% of the gross. And we're just wondering, what, what's the differentiation between that and how you decide who gets charged what and why? Yeah, basically what it is is that, you know, we get about, I would say we had 300 registered media last year. And of those, some people are going to sell imagery. And if you're making money off of Burning Man imagery, it's expected that you're going to contribute something back to the infrastructure that made it possible for you to be there. Right. Considering that um, there's a degree of acculturation that has to happen before you can really be freed into Burning Man with your camera, um, it costs money to do that, essentially. We build a shade to put over their heads, and mm-hmm. we give them cold water when they get there, and we put them Is through this... Is this what me, you're talking about, medium? Yeah, medium. Yeah. So we put them through this registration process that requires a back-end database. There's me year-round and all this, helping them with their contracts, et cetera. So these, all, these things all cost money. Medium Mecca has a really small budget, but it does have a budget. And uh, rather than expect the participants to shoulder the burden of paying for that when they didn't necessarily invite the media anyway, nor did we, I should point out, we don't proactively say, hey, you want to do a story on Burning Man? These are all people who just come to us and say they want to film. Um, so in order for the participants to not be shouldering that burden, we ask that people will make a contribution in some cases um, that is a percentage of their sales. And it's, it can get really convoluted. It depends on how big the piece is. It depends on, you know, how... That sometimes they've invested so much money that they're not making any money for a long time, even if they sell it. Right. So we, we negotiate. Um, but typically speaking, uh, with the, for example, a f- photo that's sold to a magazine, uh, a, t- a 10% or thereabouts fee is sometimes due back to Burning Man, which um, basically goes to apply to offset some of that Media Mecca budget. It's never even come close to covering the Media Mecca budget, mm-hmm. but um, it does help a little. And then that money can be retained for other things. And in some cases, you can't really, like if I'm making a television show and ABC News has, or News is a bad example, they don't pay a side fee. But it, say ABC has uh, charged me with doing a, a half-hour feature uh, primetime documentary about Brain Man. They're going to pay me to go do that. I'm never going to sell it to them. I'm being paid to do it. So a percentage is really hard to assess. So instead, we'll look at what an industry standard site fee might be for that and how many households it's going to reach and, and what the scope of it is and what the scale of the piece is and then come up with a flat site fee instead. So what about, like, my friend Haney did that burn, baby, burn? How, did, how is that different? Because I know he's paying a percentage. He is, and he's an interesting case because he's one of those who made the movie and then said, hey, I've got a movie and I'm going to release it and uh, now I'm going to work with you. <laughs> and he, he brags about that. Openly. Yeah, he likes that. Yeah. Um, but it turns out that his piece, uh, people actually found it compelling. So he came to us with a movie that was already completed and said, I shot this and edited it in, what, three, four days or whatever, and I'd like to start selling DVDs and doing screenings. 
well, rather than, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a fine piece, so rather than say, well, you didn't ask permission, so we're not going to work with you, we said, all right, if you're going to do that, then you mean, need to make this contribution back whenever you sell DVDs, so that's what his arrangement is. It, but it's common. I'm from Los Angeles, and I work in, in television and um, entertainment every day. It's common for producers to ask uh, for forgiveness than ask for permission. It's true. It's true. Although we have a pretty good, uh, pretty good history with it, simply because so many times when somebody's coming to Burning Man and they're being assigned to cover it, they don't know what they're looking for. They don't know what they're doing, and they're like, "Where's the press link?" You know, they want that help. So, um, Painty's case was was definitely an exception. How do you feel the me the presence of the media inhibits people expressing themselves? Well, um, I, I think that case by case there might be examples where someone, you know, sees a camera and decides to put her shirt on, for example, right. when she was enjoying running around like that. And I think that those are trade-offs and sacrifices that um, could be debated because if we banned cameras, she might still see that camera when she runs around topless. Um, the best thing we can try to do is hope to work with those camera people so that if they are tempted to take a picture of the beautiful costume she's wearing, they ask her first. Um, and if she wants to say no, she can say no. I found that there are definitely people who strongly don't want anything to do with cameras during that experience. Um, and various villages, for example, Gigsville had set up a no media policy. That was for a club seal, wasn't it? I think club seal, and then wherever they had the Great Canadian Beaver Eating Contest. But also, I think, as, as I remember it, uh, when I lived there, I stayed in my corner of the village a lot because we were running a theme camp. But there were signs all over the place, right. and it was basically a no media zone. Um, and we do keep a list of, um, you know, sometimes media want to talk to theme camps. So we keep a list of media-friendly theme camps that have said, mm -hmm. we are interested, actively interested in telling our story. Mm -hmm. And mentally, I'll never send anyone over to Gigsville. Hey, go over there. They'll give you an interview. <laughs> so, you know, you can try to create, you, you could make your own, whole camp a no media zone if you right. want. Um, and in other ways, I've watched people, you know, delightfully perform for the camera, be so excited to see their art piece on national television. Some people don't mind the coverage, and it's kind of like it's a trade-off and, and trying to negotiate what everybody's desires are and still allow them to be present because we are happy that they're present. It's difficult, though, when you even when you establish yourself as a no-media zone because I think oftentimes the media doesn't, doesn't either, one, they're ignorant of the fact that there are such things as no-media zones, or two, they, they, you're, they're just in the open nature of the society that you know, there's people, there's no walls, there's no fences, people yeah. are wandering around, people have cameras. I've, I've had people, you know, wander in my camp, either professional or amateur videographers wander in my camp with cameras. And What you're talking about, the shower situation that happened to me when I was yet stepping out of a shower. I had a camp, for the past few years I've been on Esplanade, and what gets me is, okay, let's define, like, public space where media can be, open playa, on Esplanade, in center camp. But when they come in the back where I'm taking a shower and right. they pretend they don't know what they're doing, right. that's is, where I start to have an issue. Is there some kind of an education process where you're, where, where those those kind of private and public spaces are defined for the media? Well, it's I wouldn't say any more than they are for anyone else. I mean, even if the stranger didn't have a camera, you might feel funny about them being back there in where your shower and your tent are. They're kind of the psychological things we do to set up boundaries, and they're supposed to respect those with or without their cameras. Um, and as far as, yeah, I mean, the conversations that they'll have when they're checked in are, you know, when they should be asking permission. And um, I don't think that there's that widespread a desire to make their make people's camps no media zones, but I can see how it would be hard 
to when there's not really a definable boundary, how do you say, and I can't follow them around all the time and say, oh, you can't go in there because there's a little circle with a slash through it with a camera in it. They might not know what that means. I think we do our best, but um, there is some contingent upon the, the organizer of a camp that if they really want that to be the case, that they might have to, you know, if, say they're having an event, they might have to post a guard at the door to make sure no cameras come in if it's, you know, something they don't want pictures of, for example. Well, we talk, we, one of the things that, that Baum and I were talking about was, you know, there's a, we have a large-scale sound art area. We have a Kidsville area where the, where the, the Burning Man organization has asked people not to have adult activities. Mm-hmm. Could we have a media-free zone? A zone where we ask the media not not to intrude within within the camps. There have been conversations about that in the past. It's just that enforcement becomes a really tricky issue. Are you going to get bouncers, and what does that mean? And you know what happens when somebody sneaks a camera in there? Who's going to you know? Is it going to be that we need to hire hire? We need to find 300 new volunteer rangers to police this area. Because uh-huh. um, I mean, people have proposed media free days before. Yeah, that's another. I mean, interesting cameras are going to be yeah. snuck out like crazy just because they're going to think something is going to happen. <laughs> that, that you know, and then if I watch that footage, how do I know it was recorded on media free day or? There you go. You know, yeah. it's just we it's, all wear red, red wigs on media free day. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you know, it's. A, a, a photographer or a videographer is taking kind of a chance by showing up there anyway. Not only can the place totally ruin your gear, but you might stumble across the wrong person who is going to pull a Sean Penn on you and punch you in the eye for taking this picture. Yeah. Now, people don't tend to punch each other out there, but you know what I mean. I Get upset. And um, I've seen people have really strong reactions and yell at the camera and try to block the shot and things like that. And I think that's part of their experience of learning what it's like to be a Burning Man. It's different from shooting in any other part of the world. Okay. Well, this year we noticed... Um I don't know. Maybe it was just our maybe it was just our perception that we were in the middle of this whole thing. But we noticed that there was there seemed to be a lot of media exposure this year with Malcolm in the Middle and with the Discovery Channel Times piece. Um, we're just wondering what is your expectation for the effects of those two pieces on the attendance specifically next year? I would say, I mean, the Malcolm piece um, was a satirical coverage, and they sure. didn't even approach us. In fact, when I first heard about it, I thought, there's <laughs> no way. And it wasn't until the show was done that I actually believed that they were going to do this. Right. And what did you think of it? <laughs> I thought it was of, funny. I thought it was pretty I thought it was. Pretty I always have myself. been a fan of that it's show. Yeah. It was a very wry and well-acted yeah. show. And um, it was it was dealt with in a, in a very Malcolm in the Middle kind of way. Right. Um I felt it was written by burners who understand burning. It. Probably yeah. was. There were, you know, a couple of, of licenses that they took with the cactus in the foot. Yeah, I think it, I think somebody said that was because no yeah, one would understand. Right, no one would understand what rebar is. Right. So they were, yeah, but it it almost seemed like it almost seemed like the writers said, you know what, this show is kind of winding down, so let's just <laughs> let's just do yeah, a show. Yeah, they just end now. Yeah, because I don't. I can't imagine anybody that hadn't gone to the event getting that episode. I just I can't imagine how anyone would have gotten that really. Yeah, and I'm. I, to, to answer the question directly, I really don't think that a show like that is going to affect our, our population. Maybe in some negligible way, there's some housewife somewhere that's like, oh, I've been hearing about that for years, and now it's been on Malcolm in the Middle. But I don't think it's going to be our biggest selling point. And it also really underrepresented, you know, the man was like 20 feet tall, and he was made right. out of sticks. It was like, and... Um, uh, I think you know it was it was fun to be a, a little blip in a moment of social commentary about America or whatever, but I don't really think it's going to draw a lot of suburban uh, families to our event necessarily. And what about and what wait, about wait, the, I, wanna, I just want to oh, because I work for the Simpsons or I have worked in the past for the Simpsons. I want to know what you thought about the reference to Bernie Mail on the Simpsons. Oh, hilarious, man! That was a while ago. Wasn't <laughs> it? Um, yeah, actually, some of the folks that work on the Simpsons definitely come too and are good friends of ours. Um, 
But I, I thought that one was really funny, even though it kind of went deep down into the territory of Bernie Man as a hippie again, <laughs> you know, because Lisa's up in the tree. And, right. And I don't know. But, um, I mean, we've seen lots of little references like that, and sometimes we get people contacting us and saying, you need to do, they mentioned you on such and such last night. So right. Yeah, <laughs> they can legally do that. Sure. And even if we didn't want them to, we probably couldn't stop them anyway. But Discovery Times, for example, I am still, you know, watching people say, well, oh, I don't have that channel. Right. I do think it's, it's, it's a higher level of exposure um, than, say, the largest majority of the kind of coverage we get, which is cable access shows or mm -hmm. a minute mention on the Reno News, et cetera. Um, but I don't think it's going to take us anywhere that we're not already as far as in in people's minds knowing about us. I mean, we've been in Time Magazine, we've been in Rolling Stone, we've been on Nightline, we were in, on Nightline in 1997. I think that we're part of culture, we're not a subculture. Larry's fond of saying that. He doesn't think we're a counterculture, right. he thinks we're a part of culture. And that's, it's more and more evident all the time, but I don't think this is a huge leap forward or anything. It's not that unusual, and the number of households that it's going to reach is even less than some of the larger pieces that we've had before. It's, yeah, it's interesting though, that you mentioned Nightline, because Nightline came out in, I believe it was 1997, and then in mm -hmm. 1998, the popular... It was, 1997 was CNN, ABC, Nightline, Time Magazine, yes. uh, the, uh, some major articles in Wired, the Wired book. The following year, the, the, the population almost doubled from about 8,000 people in 1996 to... 15,000 people in 1998. Well, we had been growing exponentially since before that, but definitely the Wired magazine was a, was a turning point. Yeah. It was an explosion, especially, you know, because the readership was uh, concurrent with a population that became attracted to Burning Man. Through that same time, not just because of the Wired piece, but through the whole Digerati network and the Bay Area thing and, and the dot-com boom and all of right. that, those folks were already being drawn in because of the centralization in San Francisco, but the Wired magazine story definitely yeah, which definitely is, did a lot of propelling. Which is kind of astounding because it, there's, I think at the time their, their uh, subscription rate was like 250000 or something like that. It was their circulation. It was, it, was, it was fairly low compared. And then Discovery Times Channel, even though, even though you know, I, I admit there's a lot of people, a lot of my friends don't get it. It's, I think their subscription rate is like 33 million people. So it's kind, of, it's kind of interesting. But um, kind of going back to touching on an idea that we talked about a little bit earlier is we, what we're curious about is um, we've heard different people say different things. Some, we've heard some people say, hey, you know, when you go to Burning Man, you have no reasonable expectation of privacy. It's none. It's, it's, you're in a public space, and, you know, if someone wants to take your picture, they can take your picture. They don't need to ask. And so um, and then there's other people who are saying, no, you know, I have full and full autonomy over my image, and no one can take my picture without my permission, whether it's in a crowd scene or or not, and we're just wondering, what's your opinion about like what? what what's a reasonable of expectation of privacy? Mm -hmm. That's a really good question because, to be honest with you, if a case really went to court and became a big deal, it would depend on are we okay? It would depend on uh, what what uh, what judge you fell in front of, honestly, um, because these are gray areas in some cases of intellectual property law. If you set foot on a city street. I can capture your image and put it on the news. Right. I can't necessarily capture your image and make it into a postcard without your permission, and you have the right to ask me not to. But um, at Burning Man, we've tried to set up a higher level of permission, and we try to work with people on enforcing that. If I found out that somebody took your picture and was selling it as a postcard, I would have the right to approach them and say, you can't sell Burning Man pictures without permission. Um, so there's there's more of an expectation than if you set your foot on a city street. That said, how far I can go legally um, is I hope to never see it have to go to you know battling it out in right. court over what the exact 
interpretation of a private event is. However, we are lucky in that we cultivate these relationships so it doesn't have to come to that. Right. And if anybody sneaks in through the front door without going through our media process, then they have the whole community to But this kind of comes to, I want to Oops, I said it. Oh, oh drink! Yes! <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Thank you for being honest. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here's my question. Uh, we talked about this um, at LADCOM. Um, what I'm concerned about is the, uh, oops, let me ask uh, forgiveness instead of permission. I'm afraid of big media with a big budget and big legal people coming in there and saying, oh, they're going to take our image and produce it out there uh, without our permission. I'm concerned about that. Well, it, de it depends on what kind of permission you mean. Say, for example, um, and what we'll, 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 we'll just say we're going to take it. Let's say it escalates. We take them to court. What's they have a thirty-three million dollar budget, and we, I don't know what Burning Man's budget is, but not thirty-three million. I'm Certainly, our legal it. budget is, is smaller than that. Well, let me let me explain this part of it. When I give, when we give a, a contract, say to Discovery Times to film, that's all they've got is permission to film. Because when you get a contract from us. We hand you this thing that says, I, you're going to do this, you're going to do this, you're going to do this. I can go through it with you line by line. And there are two very bold paragraphs. And basically what they say is, until Birdie Man countersigns this, you only have permission to film. You don't have permission to show it. And so Birdie Man um, is, they have to submit a copy and show it to us before we'll sign off on permission to distribute it anywhere. And theoretically, it could come to a grinding halt if they came to us with a piece that was seriously detrimental to the future of the event, which is one of our big concerns, or it had serious violations of someone's privacy. Um, basically represented the event in an insensitive or negative way. Um, we would have recourse and be able to say, well, you don't have permission to sign this, to, to broadcast this yet. We need to work more to get it to where it needs to be. But one We're, of the things that you're really clear about is that you don't approve the footage. In other words, you can only cite them for violations. You can't say, wow, this is a really horrible uh, documentary. Well, you can. That doesn't mean they have to listen to you. Okay. The, the, I mean, in theory, if something was just... There's, there are films back there from the past that are just, you know, they're not really violations of anything, but they're not, they, they don't represent the event in a very strong light. But with, if somebody spent all this money making a movie, going bankrupt over it, are you going to stand on their tail feathers and say, you can't show this at, mm -hmm. a, at a decompression or, or right. some private event just because it's kind of boring? So we're not here to dictate what your content should be or to be the arbiters of taste. But yes, we do have, you know, you've signed something that says you won't violate people's privacy. You've signed something that says you won't show images of nudity or illegal acts and that you will ask permission. Um, typically speaking, the relationship that you've cultivated helps with that a lot more than just saying, well, the contract says. I mean, you know, when, there, right. when the Discovery Times piece came, there were some things that we said, this is a concern for us. I'm uh -huh. not saying you have to take this out, but right. will you understand why this might negatively influence our ability to do what we need to do? And the guy was, he had a great experience at the event, and then he liked working with us, and we were able to get to a place where we felt more comfortable with it. Yeah. That's not to say that I think everything that they did makes for great television or, you know, is going to encourage, discourage, or otherwise, sure. uh, you know, represent our event for people from coming to our event. But at the same time, there are only so many things that I can say yes or no over. And if we said no, uh, you know, eh, it's all right, you didn't really violate any of the contract, but we just don't like it that much. We'd probably be spending a lot of time talking to Discovery Times' lawyers in the next few years, right. I'm sure, because they've already sure. spent some money to make it. 
So, but, you know, I, developing those relationships and having that piece of paper really does make all the difference because we have had to stop people before. And what, what about the back of the ticket and it's where it says that we appoint Burning Man as our representative? Does that, does that preclude us from taking personal action against, another, against a corporation Absolutely or an entity? Absolutely not at all. No. Um, what that does is allows me to say, hey, I, on behalf of women that I saw in that Voyeur video piece um, and on behalf of our organization, um, we are seeking to protect the privacy of these individuals. It's, like I said, a stronger case, I think, if you have those individuals also signed on the case and, and some you know, higher level legal things we would need to do that. But you also would be free to, if you, you know, you didn't feel like, you, you felt like somebody was making money off right. of your image and you hadn't given permission, you can pursue that on your own as well. Okay, excellent. Um, our next question is, do participants have the right to know who is filming them and for what purpose? That is why we put the camera tag with a number on it. Uh -huh. um, if someone um, is filming you and you're either comfortable with it or not comfortable with right. it, and you walk up to them and say, hey, what's your camera tag number? If they give you any kind of problem with that and won't show you, then it, that's the time to go find a ranger because they're not supposed to do that because you should be able to go to Media Mecca and say, hey, camera guy number 220 right. was out there today and he um, almost got beat up because he was filming this girl in the shower and uh -huh. the whole camp was pissed off. I can go act on that. Um, and you can come and just say, hey, that guy got footage of me doing this performance and I couldn't catch up with him. Who was that? Mm -hmm. and, and, yeah, I can put you in touch with him. Now, here's a situation, Ron. When we went to center camp, we were looking for a discovery. Remember that? Right, and we found and we found them. They were at Media Mecca. Yeah, but weren't we looking to try to – we found them at Media Mecca. We, weren't, we didn't know they'd be there. Right. And, and so we asked them what their camera tag number is, and they said that they, they didn't know that their crew was out. And so – Kind of our point is, is that while we might be we might be comfortable answering questions for somebody who's doing a, a piece on uh, architecture at Burning Man for a certain news organization, we might not be as okay doing it for a more purient interest piece for somebody for another channel or another news media organization. And so, what what we found is that, um, for example, uh, we had a report from our friend Mateo who did who did the headpiece on the playa, who said that Discovery came to him and said oh, you know, we're just doing this piece on this and, and kind of misrepresented themselves a little bit. Um, so is, we just want to know, is there a way that we can say, well, what do you, is there a, like a document or something that they can show us where we say, okay, this is our, this is our, like an ID tag. Right, like this is our organization, we're with this news media outlet and we're doing this piece and this is the angle that we're pursuing. Yeah, it's hard to enforce that one because, um, well, there, there are a couple facets to it. One is that if we give you a press pass that has all this, I mean, our press pass says this entitles you to absolutely nothing. Right. And they tend to start thinking that that means, oh, I get in this thing and that thing and that they're going to get a different treatment. I they see. really are supposed to be walking up and making that relationship. Hey, I'm shooting for, and most of the time they do. I've seen them on their, you know, on their cameras. The expectation that they will have signed releases from people also varies from whether they're telling the news. News doesn't require that. I have no legal way to make them ask you for anything. They can broadcast it, and news doesn't have to show us their piece because it broadcasts within X number of days after the event. So that's one area where that goes gray. Um, the other is that you know they're expected to do that, but in all cases, if you are looking at the camera and talking to the camera, um, my expectation is that they've told you why they're shooting and you're giving permission by talking to them. So it requires a little bit of proactivity on the part of the participant. And if they're being disingenuous and lying about it, well, then that's another instance where I would have to do my best to try to work with it. I can't follow them around 24 hours a day. My experience with media is I was working on a project called the Tea Temple this year. Mm -hmm. And media would come by, or just a camera. I'm not even sure it was media because I don't know the tag system. I don't know. So they'd come by and they'd 
I'd ask them who they are and what they're representing. I got a lot of stonewalling. Like, they wanted to be anonymous. And so I, I just want to know who you are and what's this, what's this for. Is there a different tag number or color for professional media versus yes. amateur media? There is. And yes. what, how is that differentiated? The uh, personal use camera tags for the past uh, at least five or six years are little white metal rimmed round tag with a number and usually a rubber stamp on it. Okay. Um, in the last two years, they've turned into a little square laminated, or actually last year was the first year we did it, that was printed because people, they, my volunteers don't like sitting and writing 10,000 sure. numbers in a row. Um, and it turned out to be cheaper to print these little hang tags. So they just say Burning Man 2005, 2006 with a little Burning Man symbol on it and a number. The media tags are big. They are a bright fluorescent color. They have a tag. They usually say Media Mecca, and they mm. have a man on them, and they're, they're like either green or pink or something like okay. that, and they have a large number written on them. And they're supposed to be displayed so prominently that you can see them when the person's filming. And it doesn't sit there and say Discovery Times right on it right. because that is – up to them to, to mediate that relationship, too, because it might change what they see if they're, you know, walking up with their big blaring lights and, hi, we're Discovery Times, and people are like, hi, Mom, getting in the way while they're trying to film right. some sensitive performance or what have you. But they are tasked with identifying themselves for certain, and, and we do have posted at Media Mecca a poster with the two different kinds of camera tags so that you can tell what the difference is. Okay. At Media Mecca, but I'll tell you what. I, I get, think I get, there was one at Playa Info, too, but I could be wrong. There well, should be. Here's my thing. I, I get to Burning Man, I get my who, what, when, where, I'm like, oh, these installations out on the open playa. I, I kind of want to be informed of who's present, what media is present, and if I might run into them. Well, I mean, you could get some idea, but I wouldn't say that you're ever going to see a, a sheet that has 300 people that says the following press are here. Part of that is just that how many of these conversations can we really have? The press are there. And if you want to know who they are, you can come down to BD Mecca and talk to us. But it's not something that I, I think needs to be pushed out into people's faces. The presence of the media is, is established. We know that they're there. That said, they are supposed to identify themselves. At the gate, though, one thing we haven't done, like in previous years, we've done a story in the BRG gate edition about why the media are there and can I, you know, just the very fact that you expect to see them. There's also a short piece in the survival guide that says the media are present here. I think we put something in the community notes of the newsletter every year or two that says the media are here, here's why, and here's what mm -hmm. you can expect. But it might be good to have um, a visual identifier for the two kinds of tags actually in the survival guide. Yeah, that would be great. We would really, really yeah, appreciate yeah. that. Yeah, in fact, maybe, yeah. yeah, that they, yeah. Note to self. <laughs> it's, kind of, it's, kind of, it's interesting. I, I heard you just note um, the BRG gate edition, and, and through this whole process, you know, we've, we've, had, we've heard you guys kind of come to the defense of media at the event. But we're kind of curious as to why... Um, if, you feel, if, if media is so important, why does Burning Man seem to be dismantling its internal media? That's a good question. Well, the BRG um, being our internal media, that's kind of a funny, funny line. Um, the, initially, one of the reasons, I mean, the BRG sort of sprung up organically and was this thing that was done that was fun, had this snarky attitude, and here's the news, and interviews with the devil, etc., and then it turned into, over time, uh, various agencies wanted us to have a communication mechanism for in the event of an emergency uh, to be able to communicate to our participants. Um, and sometimes that worked and sometimes that didn't dovetail so well with a bunch of volunteers who were saying, we have freedom of the press and we're going to make a paper, you can't tell us what to write. Um, the needs of, of that group to express themselves and to make what they thought was a free paper and the needs of Burning Man to have a communications node they, they were kind of not meshing. And um, that combined with the ballooning cost of creating the paper, which is just, uh, that's the 
nature of having a budget for anything almost. It seems like everything wants to get bigger. Um, <laughs> you have to watch that very actively, Brilliant. actually. <laughs> but, um, but you know, being trying to work with them and say, uh, no, you can't, for example, write a story about how vicious the pigs are at Burning Man because we're the police officers that we're working with and your opinion is not actually advised by what's going on behind the scenes and this is not really what the news is. And um, th For them, they wanted to do a project paper that told what stories they felt were important in Black Rock City. That's great. When Burning Man's paying for it, you can't let them necessarily be stories that bash the agencies that we need to work with, for example. Right. Mm -hmm. um, is this anything, have anything to do with the Piss Clear drug issue and no, because Piss Clear was never funded by Burning Man, and we never once told them they couldn't. Write but was there was there kind of a concern that like wow maybe the gate maybe the maybe the Black Rock Gazette might come out with something similar or report on this? And I wouldn't say that so much as like I said when we get into discussions about what was appropriate because I mean the get the Black Rock Gazette the last thing I did before bed every night was review it and sign uh -huh. off on it. So it didn't go out the door with it. But, I mean, even that part of the process is a bit onerous for someone who sure. thinks that they're writing for a newspaper and then they're being told, well, Andy Grace said you can't say that about the toilet paper. Well, what do you mean I can't? <laughs> what you were you saying about the toilet paper, Andy? <laughs> yeah, that's your mother. <laughs> I, yeah, the first thing that came to mind. So, you know, after a while, um, last year we realized, well, maybe, the, A, the agencies, we have many other ways to, to communicate. We actually have an official radio station, and last year we did this great test um, that I don't even think anybody knew was happening, that um, a guy who's in public communications for the Chicago Water Department came to us and developed a system for if we have one message it needs to go out, simulcasting on five of the radio stations and getting the word out and actually having loudspeakers at various arts mm. pieces. Mm. We can do town criers. We can do a one sheet if something comes up. Basically, the effective cost of, of you know, more than ten, twenty thousand $20,000 to make the newspaper didn't mesh with the fact that we already had ways to talk to people and we were having these continual disagreements about how the paper should be run. But what they did was glorious. They said, well, we're going to go fundraise and do it ourselves. Right. And now they have and they what they it. wanted out of a newspaper. Everybody's happy. We still did the gate edition because there are some things that you just sure. aren't appropriate for the survival guide and you need to hear when you're walking in the door. Um, and we'll probably continue to do that. But I think that it came to a, the best possible result in the end. Okay. Can we talk about 10 principles for a minute? Sure. Okay. We've been accused of being fundamentalist burners, which I think is really funny because I'm a right-wing conservative burner, my left-wing radical. But we're upholding the ten principles. And it's it's kind of interesting because people are talking about like you know the religious experiences of Burning Man, and it seems to be very much akin to a religious document. I almost expect Larry to walk down from the mountain with two stone tablets, and you know we're just wondering what that has to do with burning shit in the desert. And he's joked about if it was good enough for Moses, it's good enough for us. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the Ten Principles um, basically evolved out of uh, the formalization of the regional network um, over, I mean, we've always had sort of these, this idea that there were some overarching philosophies that we all seem to ascribe to. We didn't know what they were, and, and we talk about them like in abstract terms when they come up. Well, that's not very burner of you, and what the hell does that mean <laughs> anyway? Um, but when we started, you know, the regional network sort of sprung up organically. It came from, uh, at first it was people saying in the year we were having trouble at the gate with the, with the uh, police seizing the funds at the gate because of disputes over what the back-end fees should be. Um, we had groups coming to us and saying, we want to have a party in our town and we want to use it to benefit Burning Man. Um, but then it also mostly evolves out of that thing where people leave and they say, I don't want to wait a year like 
to feel like this again. Mm-hmm. I want to stay connected. So the Burning Man uh, regional contacts started to evolve. Well, I'll give you a, an email address and an announce list, and you can talk about what's going on in Idaho um, related to Burning Man, of interest to Burning Man participants. Um, so it just got a little more formal as time went on. And then, you know, now here we are. We have almost 100 of these people. And two years ago, we said, there's nothing that governs this relationship whatsoever. Mm. I, get, I get constant phone calls. Am I supposed to do this? Am I allowed mm. to speak for you on that? Can I get a business card? Um, <laughs> what kind of, you know, if I have a party, can I use this name? And what does it mean? And whose insurance? And blah, blah, blah. So we needed a document. We needed a document that said, here's what Burning Man offers for a regional contact. Here's what a regional contact is expected to do in the name of Burning Man. It's wide and varied, and you can interpret this a thousand ways, but here are the basic things. And here, um, at the end of it, we put this 10 principles document. Those were basically, we said, well, okay, that's the legal ease of what it means to do this, but what are we saying we believe in when we say we're doing this Burning Man thing? So Larry and the community sat down for about four months um, and wrote this document and then put it out to the regionals and said, hey, you guys, we were thinking we all figure we agree on these things. What do you think? And a few things they said, no, that's not what we understand it. And if you want me to act on Burning Man's name out here, uh-huh. here's what how I think it should be phrased. So basically, we all finessed that document together, and it became it's actually part of the agreement that they're signing. That they say, if I'm going to act in Burning Man's name, I'm going to uphold these things. Okay. So what got us here today? What got us here today is um, uh, uh, principle number three: decommodification. And I, I just want to read the first paragraph so we understand what it what it says. Mm-hmm. In order to preserve the spirit of gifting, our community seeks to create social environments that are unmediated by commercial sponsorships, transactions, or advertising. We stand ready to protect our culture from exploitation. We resist the substitution of consumption or participatory experience. Okay? My first question is, what is decommodification? What does that mean? It's not really a word. Every time I spell check it, I get (laughs) decommodization. Exactly. So what is decommodification? Can you define that? Well, um, resisting the commodification of this quote-unquote culture. Now, what does the word mean? Well, that's just it. Commodification of it would mean taking it and turning it into a simple, you know, for us to commodify it would be really simple. Somebody comes to us and says, hey, X soda company wants to sponsor your event. We'll give you all the money you need to do it, and it's a done deal. You're all taken care of. Uh, for us to do that would be commodifying what is not supposed to be a commodity. Um, so decommodification means that for that week, a special place is created where you don't, I can walk up to, but I don't have that opportunity to say, hey, I'm going to buy and sell what you believe in. Um, and you, by looking at me, you can't tell if I'm dressed up like a watermelon guy, if I'm a cop or if I'm a lawyer. or It kind of removes a lot of the social constructs around this, you know, commodified interactions that we tend to have with each other. I'll buy this from you. Hello, have a nice day. Oh, I noticed the label on your shirt. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so creating that environment where our interactions with one another um, don't have that barrier in between them is, is part of the experiment. It's not claimed to be a way that we can live our lives forever with no money and everybody let's just all be you know, part of the big collective and take off our clothes and go outside and eat a grub. But, um, <laughs> again, that's not me, that's Larry. I've done a lot of things at Burning Man, but I've never eaten a grub. <laughs> but how does, that, how does that ideal fit in with selling things at the cafe or having clean tortoise shuttle people for $5 in the Gerlach or... or or, or having the images of the man sandwiched in between commercials for 
Coca-Cola and Subaru and other companies? Well, specific to the media, I can speak to, um, I mean, hopefully later when you when you talk to Larry, you'll ask him the same question sure. because he's, he's extremely erudite on this topic. But <laughs> as, as it applies to media, um, there's... No opportunity that I'm that we're ever going to have to tell the story of Burning Man in the news. That's not going to have potential to have a Coke commercial shoved in between it. That's how the news gets told. And uh, Time Magazine has advertisements. The paper has Macy's ad on the back. It's unfortunate, and I love the models for things like this. Models right. for getting news out and creating a media that's created by users that doesn't require the mediation of those, uh, you know, taking all those financial relationships into account. That would be lovely. But in the meantime, <laughs> we have an opportunity to affect the world with this story, and we think it's worth telling. And that might mean that a, you know, we have these films that are going to get out. These people are selling these films into distribution. So far, nobody's gotten rich over it, and I don't right. think anybody ever will. But there is money moving around. It's a real-world reality. Um, and when Nightline came to the event in 97 and did us... You know, working with us, they did us a great service by legitimizing what our problem was and that d disagreement we were having. And actually, that was a very beneficial piece of media for us. The news was on, and the commercials came on in between it. I think that's just a fact. But you know, that doesn't mean that when we see a greeting card that has a Burning Man picture on it, um, that we just let it go because, well, that's just a fact. That's different. Um, and being vigilant about people not using Birdie Man's name to sell unrelated product, products on eBay, that's mm -hmm. different. Yeah. Um, but the news is, is always, well, I shouldn't say that, I hope it's not, but <laughs> right now in our world, it does uh, come sandwiched with these things that also try to sell us things, and I, I wish it weren't the case, but I, I don't have an opportunity to help get the word out about yeah. Birdie Man without that. And um, just, to, just kind of in closing, uh, you know, last year there seemed like there's some. Last year and the year before, there seemed like there's some significant voices of dissent um, within the the community. Whoa, community. And it seemed like it seemed to us, in a way, I mean, we were, we always appreciated the way that you dealt with us, but we did feel that there was that people felt that we did feel like that I there felt was, dismissed and it many yeah. times ignored. And and so we had you know we had Save BRC, we had Borg too. Um, we had the whole thing with the Carnival Cruise on the JRS, and people were up in arms. Wait, and do you, I don't think people know what the JRS is. Okay, well, go ahead um, and explain. That was um, on a, what was that? That was where um, JRS announced a, a commercial cruise on the same day that we were also having our LID come. So there, it, it blew up. Right. And so I guess our question is, 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 is there a, a room for the voice of dissent and constructive criticism within this organization? And if so, how do we, you know, how do we communicate that with each other? All these issues that you just mentioned, I've had dozens of one-on-one -on -one conversations about. Um, and sometimes it can feel like you're being ignored when I spend most of my time responding to 100 emails just <laughs> like yours. It might take me a while to get to yours, for example. Um, but I think there is room for dissent. I mean, for example, that cruise announcement that went out, human beings sent that out not thinking, oh, Ber Bernie Man decompression in L.A. is this day, trying to do what was right by, the, you know, it, had, it was a, a thing that benefited the Black Rock Arts Foundation. Right. It had stemmed from burners, blah, 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 trying to do a good thing. And remembering that, you know, hearing that L.A. was offended, Rightly so. I was able to respond to it what, um, and, and talk about it. Um, or this 
Discovery Times thing brings to light the fact that even after all these years of doing it the way we do it and the information that we've put out, there are still some things that people don't understand about our media process because some of those some of those uh, objections that we got were saying things like, why did you let cameras in the door this year? Well, it's, right. we've been letting cameras in the door all along, but perhaps we're not calling that information out enough. And... Uh, you know, I've been backing off of my time online. I read the ePlaya because I'm in charge of helping to keep it running. Uh-huh. And um, I read the Burning Man threads on certain tribes that I need to read. And I read the Burning Man Bitch Fest on 3ePlaya because <laughs> I want to know what And you do a great job responding to questions. <laughs> well, there. you I sometimes really appreciate take a it. deep breath and dive in. And some things, <laughs> some things you just ignore. Yeah. Um, I will admit that. Some things you have to ignore because they're opinions that, you know, if somebody is going to get on and post a horrible story about what a terrible person Larry Harvey is, I could spend all day defending sure. us against stuff like that. But you just have to let certain things wash over you. Some people are just uninformed, and I can't go chasing them down going, no, Larry's a really good guy. You don't understand. Right. But um, when it comes time to actually hear what people have to say, I hope that, I mean, the reason that I keep my fingers in all these electronic pies and the reason that I participate in all these online communities is... Ah, drink! Is that um, I don't want to crawl up on to a ladder and go up in some ivory tower and forget that I first and foremost came to this because of the experience I had as a participant in it, and all my friends are, you know, burners. This is what I do, and knowing what people say about it, positive and negative, I, I'm a person who loves criticism because it's an opportunity. But so, how do people? How do you? How do someone who has feedback for the organization? How do they present it to the organization? Like, wh- in what way would, what is most effective for you and for the organization? There's lots of different ways. I mean, it's coming from all directions all the time. There's, you know, in conversation with friends, all the way up to really formal things like post event. We put up a feedback email. Uh, we send that. That's on the home page. There's always questions at and complaints at BurningMan.com. They're always on the website. We have one person whose job is answering complaints at BurningMan.com and feeding us when things come in that we need to hear about that we can maybe help to adjust. Um, You get constant feedback through the Jackrabbit. I get hundreds of emails a month. Um, Just could be a submission, but it's usually just, hey, I wanted to let you know. I didn't think that the place the porta potties was. was." I mean, you get a lot of that feedback there. Um, And then anytime someone finds out if you're a even just a volunteer manager on some remote team, somebody finds out that you work for the organization and they start f- filtering information back through and you push it up to your managers. It comes from all directions everywhere, and there are formal and informal ways that we get it, but we definitely hear from people. Okay, <laughs> so, you're, so what you're telling us is that you appreciate you Because what we've heard from a lot of people in the community is that um, – is that, you know, some people were like, love it or leave it, you know, like, you know, you should appreciate all that Burning Man does for you, and, they, you know, you don't need to always be complaining, and those, that's, that's a lot of the feedback that we've gotten from that, but but it's good to know that, that you're telling us that you appreciate the feedback, and, and, that, and that you listen to it, even if you don't always have time to respond to every single complaint or, or criticism. And, and not even... It, Responses and sometimes things also just are the way they are because it's necessitated with the survival of the event. Taking the time to sit down and explain that is sometimes hard. Mm -hmm. We have to, you know, there are those who who have complaints going back 10 years and it's just (laughs) stuff that, yes, we heard you last year, we hear you this year, we're still going to do it the way we need to do it. Um, That's not, I don't really feel like love it or leave it, but at a certain point, if somebody was just adamant that we needed to burn a duck, Mm-hmm. And we were like, where are you coming at us with this duck idea? You need to burn a duck. And we got 600 people that think you need to burn a duck. Well, we're probably not going to burn a duck. Why, was it, why is there only one exit out of that place? You know, like, <laughs> That's what I want. I want more exits. 
And so when it when it comes to things that that you know, if you start to feel like we're not getting anywhere, I feel like I've explained myself. Sometimes, yeah, I just can't respond over and over again right. with a lengthy email about why we're not bringing a duck again this year. Right. Um, well, wait, just, we're, we're getting close to the end of the tape, and so we might have to switch it out. Okay, so I know. but I think that's it. I think we're I think we're about wrapped up. Unless you have anything else, Andy, that you want to add. Yeah, do you have anything you want to say to our listeners? Uh, no, just that um, I hope that if there are any things that people continually feel frustrated about, that they'll approach as human beings. If there's a question about the media process, come on down and talk to us at Media Mecca. We could always use a hand. If somebody wants to get <laughs> deeply involved and say, I feel strongly about this and I think it should be different, um, that's the great thing about Burning Man is that you happen to it. So if you have something to say, our ears are always open. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much, and we really appreciate um, you having this dialogue with us, taking the time out of your schedule to do this. And interview. we're wearing tutus. And we we're wearing tutus. tutus. We're yeah. all wearing tutus. It's Tutu Tuesday. Yeah, everyone in the office is wearing tutus. But we really do appreciate all your hard work and dedication, and and uh, and for all the great responses and for allowing us to come in here today. Okay, so. Um, since I'm running sound, I wasn't even able to wear. Who won the drinking game today? Uh, I don't know. I think it, we'll have to review the tape, but it was pretty <laughs> I close. I think I drank twice. <laughs> I think I drank maybe twice, or maybe three times. Community! There you go. Everyone drink again. Okay. It was for work, I swear. <laughs> we made her do it. Okay, so that's it for this for this burn cast. Uh, again, just thank Andy Grace for being with us here today, and uh, you know, look forward to um, to more burn casts, uh, more topics in the future. Thanks, you guys. Yep. Thanks. Bye.